Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.
Today is Friday, April 9th, 2021. Coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Uh, folks, uh, rapper DMX is dead. Passed away at the age of 50. Uh, we'll tell you uh, exactly uh, what took place and how uh, entertainment fans all across the globe are mourning his death. It is day 10 of the murder trial of Derek Chauvin and the prosecution wraps the weekly testimony from the forensic pathologist who said that the activities by law enforcement were the immediate cause of George Floyd's death. The Centers for Disease Control's director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, declares racism is a serious public health threat. Also, Georgia State Representative Park Cannon speaks out for the first time since the charges against her have been dropped. A lawyer for Joel Greenberg, an indicted former official in Florida, said Greenberg may cooperate as a witness against Congressman Matt Gates in a Department of Justice inquiry. And in Alabama, it appears that Amazon has enough votes to stop the formation of a union. And will be joined by the Arizona couple who may lose their food truck business because of an irate white man pulling a gun out on them. And in our Education Matters segment, why are state officials in New York, Democrats, stopping the expansion of charter schools when parents want that? We'll talk with Dr. Steve Perry about that. And also, one of the oldest historically black churches in the country may be able to bankrupt the Proud Boys. We'll explain. And a North Carolina man paid, uh, paid, spent 44 years in prison, but he's only being compensated for 15 of those by the state of North Carolina. And my one-on-one -on -one with Michael McMillan, president and CEO of the Urban League of Metropolitan St. Louis. Folks, if you want to see an Urban League chapter who is doing things right, you don't want to miss this interview. It is time to bring the funk. The Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go. One week ago, many folks were shocked to learn of DMX being in the hospital after suffering a heart attack uh, after an overdose. Today, his family announced his death. Of course, this is the statement that they released to the public uh, after the number of people speculated last night that he had passed away, but that really uh, he was removed from life support today. This is their statement right here. We're deeply saddened to announce today that our loved one, DMX, birth name of Earl Simmons, passed away at 50 years old at White Plains Hospital with his family by his side after being placed on life support for the past few days. 
Earl was a warrior who fought till the very end. He loved his family with all his heart, and we cherish the times we spent with him. Earl's music inspired countless fans across the world, and his iconic legacy will live on forever. We appreciate all the love and support during this incredibly difficult time. Please respect our privacy as we grieve the loss of our brother, father, uncle, and the man the world knew as DMX. We will share information about his memorial service once details are finalized. He, of course, is known for hits like Party Up, uh, X Gonna Give It, and, uh, and just so many other songs with Rough Riders. Uh, and, of course, um, history-making uh, artists. The number of consecutive platinum albums, uh, just stunning. The production that he uh, had in the 1990s uh, cannot simply uh, be ignored. <clears throat> um, DMX uh, talked openly about uh, the first time uh, he smoked... Uh, a joint, but it was laced with cocaine given to him, it was laced with crack, I'm sorry, given to him by uh, a mentor of his. It was that action that actually led to years and years of significant issues with drugs. He was in and out of rehab, in trouble with the law enforcement, fighting his demons, a man who believed in God, did an entire gospel album talking about faith and the demons and the devil and the battle back and forth. And so he was someone who had a significant influence on hip-hop. Again, lost at the age of 50 years old. All across social media, uh, folks have been paying tribute to DMX. Individuals posting photos, uh, encounters, their first time meeting him, uh, videos as well. On Monday, uh, we are going to have our hour-long special dedicated to the life uh, of DMX. Uh, but right now, I do want to talk about uh, his life and legacy with uh, our panel. Joining me right now is, of course, um, Rob Richardson, host of the Dis Disruption Now podcast, Michael Imhotep, host of the African History Network show, Johan LeBlanc, National Security and Foreign Affairs Legal Analyst. Uh, Rob, I'll start with you. Um, again, the, the influence of uh, DMX is undeniable. Uh, the moment you heard his voice, you knew exactly who he was. He did not you sound like did. did not sound like no. anyone else. Um, and um, it's been he's been described as a tortured soul. And one tweet said, "We people often say rest in peace when someone passes away." And one person said, "If that if that was a phrase that was really meant for anybody, that they hope that." DMX would rest in peace after uh, really the last uh, 30 years of his life. Yeah, uh, DMX, uh, I, I came of age during DMX. It was all the, the music we listened to at parties and uh, you did, you knew who, D, uh, who DMX was. His voice was undeniable. Uh, it, it was, uh, you, you knew it was just a powerful voice and you could feel in his music he was tortured. He talked through his music. A lot of it was the, literally, you talk about the demons he battled, he had uh, a lot of his songs and a lot of the poetry in his songs was about the demons he was battling. And you you can feel it. And you knew that it was more than just entertainment. It was who he was. Um, and yes, he struggled like a lot of us have, like a lot of people have with addiction. Um, and, and, and it's a demon that is hard to fight. I've had family members, I have family members uh, that um, have battled with addiction. And once you're an addict, you're always an addict. And you just have to make sure that you step away from it so you don't put yourself in a situation, but it's very hard because once you, one, if you are an addict and you happen to have that gene and you uh, have the encounter that something like DMX had where someone exposes you when they shouldn't, it can really, uh, it can really affect you. So I, I, I really felt his music to my soul. 
And um, he made an impact on this world, though. His voice will never be forgotten, and you know who he is. Every time, every time you hear a DMX song, you'll know. You'll know, and I think uh, people are going to get to know more about his music and relive some of the '90s. Those, those were my years in college, and uh, DMX is one of the people I think of. Michael Himotep. You know, uh, Roland. I remember working at a radio station when DMX was hot in the late '90s. A radio station, a popular radio station here in Detroit. DMX had some club bangers. I'm telling people think I wasn't in the clubs. Oh, yes, I was. Oh, I had friends that own clubs. DMX song comes on, whether it's a, a, a nightclub or a gentleman's club. People are, I mean, people know the song. You know, so I, I remember back in late 90s, um, it was a popular phrase, y'all going to make me lose my mind up in here, up in here. That's DMX. I got DMX in the crates on cassette tape. I got DMX in the crates on cassette tape. I got a ton of, I have a ton of music, all different genres. But when you listen to DMX, as Rob was saying, you can tell, and back back then, I didn't know like his whole story. We know more about it now because social media, late nineties, man, you know, it it wasn't anywhere. I mean, uh, uh, Google was founded in 1995. YouTube wasn't founded in 2005. But when you listen to his lyrics, you can tell he was a tortured soul and he was fighting these demon, demons. And a lot of people could relate to this. So it wasn't, um, even though maybe some of the lyrical content everybody might not agree with, things like this, but you knew it was something deeper that he was fighting. And unfortunately, and, and I'll be 50 uh, June 7th of this year. You know, and one thing I've talked about on my show, and I grew up with hip hop, going back to Rapper's Delight, 1979. When when we were listening to all these artists, whether it's Run DMC, things like this, we never thought about them dying from heart attacks, drug overdoses. I'm still shocked by gray hair rappers. I'm like, who the hell is this? I grew up with them, but still, look, I saw a commercial with Tag Team, and they had gray beards. I'm like, who the hell is this? So we never thought about, because we listened to them when we were younger, a lot of times we never thought about these rappers getting older and passing on. So, you know, this is this is a, a tragedy, brother. But, yeah, he can really rest in peace now. Well, the reality is I don't think uh, anyone um, thinks about uh, folks who, in essence, were peers uh, doing that. We think folks are going to live forever. Uh, if, you mm-hmm. grew, if you grew up uh, with Aretha Franklin, uh, you grew mm-hmm. up with Mary Wilson, if you grew up with... Uh, any number of artists. Uh, that's that's uh, that, that's what people think. I think also what what is very difficult, uh, Johanna, is for folks to really understand addiction, to really understand what people go through. That was you know, and, and that's just reality. Over the years, folks uh, made light of the arrest, uh, going to substance abuse uh, counseling, going to rehab, filing for bankruptcy, all of those different things. Um, but when you're 14 years old and a friend hands you uh, marijuana and you don't know it's laced with crack, uh, he has t- he talked about how that uh, set him on this 36-year uh, odyssey uh, that has tormented that, that, that tormented him. Um, and we think about uh, the overdose. Keep in mind, Prince overdose. Mm-hmm. Michael Jackson, Jackson overdose. overdose. Whitney Houston. Overdose. overdose. Jimi Hendrix, overdose. Dinah Washington, overdose. 
there are a number of artists uh, that uh, we can think of, and, and that is addiction is an illness. That's what it is. Johanna? Yes, certainly, Roland Martin. Um, my thoughts and prayers are with the families and, and friends of, 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 of DMX. Um, but you're absolutely correct. I think um, when it comes to the notion of addiction, it is a great um, concern in our community. And one of the reasons why um, DMX was so popular and was so loved by so many different people is because of his rawness in his music. Um, as my co-panelist um, just indicated, um, he was real. He was authentic. He was genuine. Um, he allowed us to um, un understand and to learn about his pain and, and to walk this journey with him. Um, and I think that's what made him such a, not just an icon here in the United States, but also internationally. And DMX had the, the type of voice that you can recognize uh, from miles away, even if you did not know his name, but the voice was just so unique. Um, so his legacy will live on forever. Um, but there needs to be a greater conversation about the addiction that is killing so many of our talented um, brothers and sisters. Um, and the names that you mentioned earlier are the names that we know about. But there are so many people, everyday people, who are dying due to addiction, whether it be crack, cocaine, or, or drugs, whatever the case may be. Uh, and we need to ensure that as a society, we have the resources available to respond to the needs of those people and don't shun them. Because um, I know social media, um, people use it for different reasons and sometimes to embarrass people. But we need to understand that addiction is a real concern that needs to be addressed with, with the highest level of seriousness. Well, absolutely. And like I said, folks, uh, on uh, Monday's show, uh, we're going to pay tribute. There are so many uh, artists um, that, who are still just raw over his loss, even though um, really mm -hmm. folks uh, expected this his last Friday uh, when he was on life support. Uh, but it's still uh, even more difficult to fathom uh, losing. Like say more, Rob, go ahead. That's like the more thing. This is something you, you alluded to it, but we as a community have to also deal with addiction and also deal with our health and take it seriously. I think, you know, it did hit me hard because he's closer to a peer. It's like, wait, he's not that old. At least that's how I look at it. Right. But this, but he's mm -hmm. no longer with us as specifically as black men, you mentioned an artist, but specifically as black men, we tend to die sooner. So we need to uh, do everything we can to take care of our health. I mean, this is, this is a unfortunate wake up call too, that, you know, you're not too young to die. We need to take care of ourselves. Well, that was and a point. More, your health is yeah. your wealth. So, yes. Yeah. Well, that was that was a that, that was a point that we uh, we we talked about and discussed the other day uh, when we celebrated the life and life of uh, Midwin Charles, who passed away at the age of forty-seven. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, on Monday, uh, we'll uh, pay tribute. We'll have a number of folks, uh, artists, on uh, sharing their thoughts and reflections uh, about DMZ. Excuse me, DMX. Again, DMX. passing away, passing away uh, today at the age of fifty years old. Folks, let's go to the Derek Chauvin trial. Determining George Floyd's cause of death remained the focus today in the trial of the ex-Minneapolis police officer. A forensic pathologist and the chief medical examiner who performed Floyd's autopsy delivered riveting testimonies. This is what they had to say. So, Dr. Baker, take into account the entire exchange you had with Mr. Nelson on Mr. Floyd's uh, medical conditions, on whatever testimony you gave, wherever you gave it, I want to bring our attention back to what's reflected in Exhibit 193. And taking all of that into account, uh, what today 
remains your opinion as to the cause of death for Mr. Floyd. So my opinion remains unchanged. It's what I put on the death certificate last June. That's cardiopulmonary arrest, complicating law enforcement, subdual restraint, and neck compression. That was my top line then. It would stay my top line now. And so if we look at the other contributing conditions, those other contributing conditions are not conditions that you consider direct causes. Is that true? They are not direct causes of Mr. Floyd's death. That's true. They're contributing causes. And in terms of manner of death, you found then, and do you stand by today, that the manner of death for Mr. Floyd was, as you would call it, homicide? Yes, I would still classify it as a homicide today. Thank you, Dr. Baker. No further questions. So, so Dr. Uh, Baker, uh, we, we did find from the toxicology uh, amounts of fentanyl and methamphetamine in the results from the lab. That is correct. Uh, you didn't mention either fentanyl or meth in Mr. Floyd's system. Um, you mentioned those, but you don't list either, uh, either of them on the top line as causes of death. Uh, why is that? Uh, well, the top line of the cause of death is really what you think is the, the, the most important thing that precipitated the death. Um, other things that you think played a role in the death but were not direct causes get relegated to what's known as the other significant conditions part of the death certificate. So the other significant conditions are things that played a role in the death but didn't directly cause the death. So, for example, you know, Mr. Floyd's use of fentanyl did not cause the subdual or neck restraint. His heart disease did not cause the, um, the subdual or the neck restraint. All right, so, so these are uh, items that may have contributed but weren't the direct cause. Correct. In Mr. Floyd's specific case, the fact that he had been COVID positive seven or eight weeks before he passed away did not factor into my cause of death determination because I didn't see any signs of COVID at his autopsy and his lungs did not have any of the stigmata of COVID that I would expect to see under the microscope. And sure enough, that came back with the exact number that would be consistent with Mr. Floyd having sickle cell trait. So it, it's really just a fluke that it got picked up at autopsy. In my opinion, it doesn't have anything to do with why he died. All right. So if you put all this together, cardiopulmonary arrest, complicating, law enforcement subdual, restraint, and neck compression. What does that mean? Well, what it means to me is that the activities of the law enforcement officers resulted in Mr. Floyd's death, and that specifically those activities were the subdual, the restraint, and the uh, neck compression. And does this then also represent your own conclusion? Yes. Uh, a, a conclusion you have reached and an opinion you hold to a reasonable degree of medical certainty? Yes. Was the methamphetamine uh, significant in your assessment of the cause of death? No. So then based on your uh, view, review of the video and application of your work experience and knowledge, uh, did you rule out uh, drug overdose uh, as a uh, cause of death? Yes. And that's an opinion you hold to a reasonable degree of medical certainty? Yes. So if uh, the manner of death here has been determined to be homicide, uh, does that, in your opinion as a medical examiner, rule out a death by accidental drug overdose? Yes. Rob, I've talked about all week, um, really the last couple of weeks, how the prosecutors, how they have uh, moved through this. Uh, they really, 
uh, haven't run away from the issue of drugs in George Floyd and really blunting the efforts of the defense uh, to make that the cause. Uh, it's going to be a little hard to try to, I believe, to convince this jury that that medical examiner is out of his mind when he said, nope, nothing changes my, my opinion. This was homicide. Yeah, I, I would hope so. Uh, I can say 20 years ago, almost to the day from yesterday, um, Cincinnati, we, we, we had an officer shot, shoot and kill an unarmed African-American man, Timothy Thomas. Uh, then I was a student listening to DMX. Um, I, was, I, was, uh, I was head of the, uh, the student chapter of the NAACP, and then I was in, actually in the middle of election to become student body president. But obviously the, the, there were, there were uh, demonstrations and there were some riots and there was just all out, you know, just chaos. And, and the city of Cincinnati shut down for four days and there was a curfew. And all the things you see happening right now before social media has been happening for a very long time. Happened when I was a student, happened before I was a student, and now we are seeing this play out once again. And I will say what the prosecution is hoping is going to work is what worked in the Timothy Thomas's murder trial. It's what worked in uh, Samuel DeBose when I became chairman of the board. An officer shot someone and killed an unarmed African-American man. And their goal is to they know it's not reasonable. Their goal is to try to get into the mind of one juror if they can and get this to be a hung hung jury to say uh, and to figure out a way to dehumanize him or to say he he's the reason he died. That has worked before. We know it's a playbook that has worked very well. I will say that I, the, how the prosecution has uh, litigated the case is some of the best I have seen in any of these cases. They they did what you just said. They definitely addressed the issue uh, just, just, just front of the matter to make sure that they didn't allow that force to be used. Next, they also did a good job of humanizing uh, George Floyd, not as somebody that was a drug addict uh, or somebody that, you know, was a criminal, but someone that was a human, that was a volunteer. And that happened to, just like we just talked about with DMX, he happened to have an issue with drug addiction, just like many black and a whole lot of white Americans have issues with. And so they, they did a really good job of humanizing him and, 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 not, and, and not allowing the defense to paint this narrative that this, the reason why George Floyd is dead is, is because something George Floyd did. No, it's because this officer stood on his neck for nine minutes in the discussion. Anna? Well, first and foremost, I, I, I agree with my, with my co-panelist. Um, anybody who has eyes um, and has um, watched the video, you will see that um, it was straight up homicide, right? Um, but, um, defense. Um, they have to play their part, right? Um, you're paid to do a job that is to defend your client to the best of your, um, to the best of your ability, right? Um, so um, trying to smear and trying to um, uh, make um, George Floyd uh, to appear, appear to be this less than perfect citizen or this person who is the cause of his own death um, is not is nothing new in the playbook. Um, it is something that uh, prosecution defense use all the time when they're trying to win a case. You ruin the uh, credibility 
of, of the person. And, and, and that way, it's easier for you to win your case. Uh, but here, we must re remember that it is not George Floyd that is on trial. It is not him. Um, he is someone that was murdered. Um, and when I look at this issue from a global perspective, what I can tell you is that uh, the United States, as the leading country when it comes to human rights, cannot continue to police the human rights activities of other nations if we are violating the rights of our own citizens each and every day, especially the rights of our black uh, and brown and poor people in this country. Um, so I know with Secretary Blinken, um, after he was sworn in, he vowed to the international community that he was going to focus on human rights. He was going to ensure that countries do not violate the rights of, of, of others, of, of other citizens. Uh, but we have to start at home. We have to be the role model. We have to show the rest of the world how this is supposed to be done. Because the reality is that, Roland, the world is watching this trial. I mean, South Africa, Ghana, Nigeria, they are watching this step by step. And I've been on television all across the continent um, giving my own analysis of, of, of this trial. And they're paying attention. And the outcome of this trial will impact America's standing. Michael Imhotep. Well, Roland, I've been watching every day of uh, the trial. I've been talking about every night on my show. I'm on six nights a week. And there's been very damaging testimony, especially that's come out today and um, yesterday, Thursday, uh, from the experts, from uh, Dr. Uh, Martin Tobin, from um, the um, heart surgeon, um, uh, Dr. Bill Smock, and then today from the medical examiner, uh, Dr. Andrew Baker, and then also from Dr. Thomas. And what, what the prosecution has been doing is systematically going through step by step by step, based upon facts and evidence with expert witnesses, dismantling and disarming the defense of their argument whether it's heart disease, whether it's the drugs, whether it's excited delirium. And excited delirium is rooted in racism. On day nine of the, of the testimony, Dr. Bill Smock shut down the excited delirium uh, argument as well. Okay, so it, it's uh, masterful what's, what the prosecution has done. But I caution people, as I've been cautioning my listeners, um, the defense has not presented their case yet. Once the prosecution rests, then the defense will bring forth their witnesses. The defense will bring forth their 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 case. They, they, yes, Eric Nelson has done cross-examination, but the defense has not presented their case yet. So uh, even though this is damaging and hopefully uh, uh, Chauvin is, is found guilty because we all know he's guilty. But as Rob was saying, it's, it's extremely important for people to understand the, the burden of proof is on the prosecution. The prosecution has to prove. Uh, depending upon which charge that you're trying to get a conviction on or whatever, they have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt to 12 jurors. It has to be unanimous based upon the evidence, yep. not based upon feelings and emotions. If there's one juror who has doubt and, 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 Nelson, and Nelson is consistently trying to plant the seeds of doubt in at least one juror, if he can get one juror to say, well, I'm not sure, then you have a mistrial. Okay, yep. and it's up to the prosecution to 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 try Chauvin again. So once again, we have to pay attention to this. But uh, lastly, I will say this is a good opportunity for especially African-Americans to study law 
and to understand these whole legal proceedings and things like this, because unfortunately, the two things we don't understand, one is history, the other is law. Yeah, I will say like, one other point on this. When you look at if this case was not an officer, this would be clear as day. Someone sitting on someone's neck for nine minutes and they died. But the fact that it's so hard for us to convict an officer is the is is the challenge within this within this case because officers are allowed to get away with anything and they're assumed to have the benefit of the doubt. And so, to Michael's point, you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. It's even a higher standard when it comes to officers. You have to prove beyond any doubt. Like there. That's not even the, the the actual legal standard, but the actual standard and how, how it is applied when a police officer kills a black person, it's almost beyond any doubt, not even reasonable doubt. And we have to we have to change that perception. So and the the, the defense knows that. So they're gonna go time and time and again just to just figure out is there any way we can just create a little bit of doubt? Because that's all I need to do. Right. All I need to do is say, well, oh, it was just a little bit of excessive force. He didn't know that was gonna happen. Or or you know the officer was just so concerned about the crowd. Somebody might believe that because they're they have some racist mm-hmm. beliefs, or they don't know they have racist beliefs, and they just they're they're speaking to that one or two person uh, people. Because I think the majority of the of the jury are going to find guilt in some way, but it's going to be very challenging to find a unanimous uh, uh, verdict. I think this is clear as day. I think it should be. I think we 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 haven't seen many clearer cases than this, but that doesn't mean it's guaranteed. Uh, just given the history of America when it comes to convicting officers. Right. Uh, right. well, oh, okay. Go ahead, final comment, final comment. That's why it's important um, to have legislation to address the, the qualified immunity, um, because we know oftentimes officers get to walk away because of this protection, and that is the highest protection that one Absolutely. can have. Um, while I do understand that officers are put in positions where they have to make an instant decision as to, am I going to die or is someone else going to die, right? And they have to decide quick. And sometimes they're in situations where if they don't act, they will die and other people will also die. But at the very same time, it needs to be done in in, in a manner where uh, people don't have this implicit bias. Because the reason why you're easy, it's easier for you to pull that trigger on a black man versus a, a, a white man is because the notion of fear. Um, is, is this person, do I find this person threatening to me, right? And, and if the answer is yes, because of your implicit biases, you are more than likely to pull that trigger or in the case of, of George Floyd, um, straight up murder the guy, right? Um, so, so the qualified immunity needs to be addressed through federal legislation. And two, there needs to be even more work done in the area of implicit biases and so forth. All right, folks, let's talk about what the CDC has now declared that racism is a new serious public health threat. Uh, the CDC is the largest federal agency to acknowledge the issue as a threat, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky said in a statement published on the agency's website. Uh, a growing body of research shows that centuries of racism in this country has had a profound and negative impact on communities of color. Confronting the impact of racism will not be easy. I know that we can do this if we work together. I certainly hope you will lean in and join me. The nation's leading public health agency established the web portal Racism and Health to serve as a hub for activities and promote a public discourse on how racism negatively affects health and communicates potential solutions. Um, This is important, uh, Johanna, to acknowledge because when we look at health issues, when we look at the health of African-Americans, the stress associated, all those things that go into this, 
uh, the role that the racism plays. And, and again, for uh, folks uh, who are white in this country who don't have to deal with microaggressions, who don't have to deal with what we do, this is uh, greatly significant. Yeah, and I, I agree. Um, it is um, a crisis and it is something that um, racism in particular that we should really um, address and, and, and go to the root cause and not just put a Band-Aid on it. Because I think what we have been doing um, for the past decade or so is we've been putting a Band-Aid on the issue of racism. But when it comes to inequalities and, and disparities in this country, the numbers don't look good for people of color. Um, there was a, a, a Senate report released um, in 2019 about the state of black America. And here are some, some daunting numbers, Roland. Uh, the median wealth of black families is $17,000, which is less than one-tenth of that of white families, which is 171,000 US dollars. And then we all know the quickest way to gain wealth in America is through home ownership. Well, the data shows that much less than 40 2% of black families own their homes compared to almost three quarters, which is 73% of white families. Um, and also one last point, the typical black households earn a fraction of white households, just 59% on every dollar. The gap between black and white annually household incomes is about 29,000 per year. Now, these systemic injustices, and when you look at the data, when you look at when people go on and they attain higher education, they, they, they receive professional uh, degrees and so forth. But you don't see that much shift in terms of the inequalities between, um, uh, be, between wealth um, from, from white people. So, so the data is there. Even when black people take the appropriate steps, do the right thing, follow the law, you go to school, you are a law-abiding citizen, you go to church, right? You do all the things that society tells you to do. The inequality still exists, which is a serious public health um, crisis, because when you are faced with these challenges, guess what? It impacts your health. It impacts your ability to engage in day-to-day -day activities. And I know a black woman, we are so strong and we are so brave, but so many of us are dealing with these issues internally in the workplace, and it is impacting our health, and we bring it to the household, and it impacts the way we interact with our with our families um, and with our children and so on. So I agree with the doctor. Um, it is a serious public health crisis and it should have been declared decades ago, not today. Rob. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I, I've seen a lot of these. And so I'm gonna take a little bit of a different view, like water is wet. Yes, it's been a crisis. Now, because I've seen a lot of state legislators, they do these little resolutions to say like racism is a public crisis. Yes, it's been. My next step is always then what? Like, what are we doing about it? What specifically are we going to do? How much money are we going to allocate to this? What, 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 what's our steps? What's our plans and policies that that change? Because it's been a healthcare, it's been a serious crisis for a really long time. Uh, so, yes, I'm glad they acknowledged it, but I'm like, okay, now what? Because we have some real, we have some issues that we need to to get solved, and I'm glad they acknowledge it. Uh, but I'm now kind of over that. It's like people saying Black Lives Matter. Okay, slow clap. Now what? Like, like, what are we going to do to change things? That's kind of my perspective on this. And, and the reality, Michael, yeah, now you see the CDC. How are you now going to take this and integrate this into public policy? 
Yes, policy has to follow behind this rolling. Uh, racism is a system of advantage and privilege distributed based upon race. It comes out of the ideology of European white supremacy. This is for the purpose of preserving genetic white survival. Uh, this is this is significant here that uh, the CDC director is uh, saying this, Dr. Walensky, and also. Uh, the American Medical Association said something very similar back in November of 2020 as well. And um, th that is uh, the Amer American Medical Association. Um, President Susan Bailey put out a statement uh, on Thursday, uh, April 8th, basically backing this up and also talking about the impact that uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has had disproportionately on African-American and Hispanic communities. So, um policy has to follow this and this is why and all this also ties into a lot of this also ties into um the two trillion dollar plus infrastructure bill that uh, joe biden ju uh, just unveiled because and, and uh, joe manson it, pretty it, much it, tried to cancel go ahead <laughs> yeah joe manson tried to right. well joe manson is what is in west i digress I mean, go ahead i'm it, sorry i took yeah go yeah ahead. yeah you know uh we we know joe manson's game but um there's a history behind racism and infrastructure and U U.S. highways, okay? U uh, the U.S. Interstate Highway Acts in 1952 and 1956 drove somewhere around 41,000 miles of interstate highway across the country, but they ran right through African-American communities, wiping out a lot of our homes, wiping out a lot of our businesses, disrupting our communities. So that uh, this right here, dealing with racism, is 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 we see this in all aspects of society. So you have to have policy that addresses this to correct this. Okay, this is why this is so important. And lastly, you know, this ties into the um, study from Citigroup Bank that came out September 2020 that dealt with how the U.S. economy has lost 16 trillion dollars over the past 20 years from the year 2000 to the year 2020, and it's because of uh, uh, policies dealing with racism. And it, but it, but but one thing that's important that it says is that. If you can correct these structural inequities, then over the next five years, the U.S. economy can grow by five trillion dollars. Mm -hmm. So there's an incentive to create this. It, 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 something important that that Citigroup study shows is, is that how racism negatively impacts everybody, including many white people who they think who, who think they benefit from racism. It shows how it even negatively impacts you as well. So. This is a good first step, but we have to have policy behind this. Absolutely. All right, folks, we're going to get you up to date, get you up to date uh, on some stories we covered. Uh, Georgia House Rep. Park Cannon spoke out for the first time since the felony charges against her had been dropped. On March 25th, she was arrested for knocking on Governor Brian Kemp's door while signing the voter suppression bill into law. Uh, this is what she had to say. stand here today at our state capitol after what has felt like the longest two weeks of my life. Free from the threat of eight years in prison for simply doing my job. Thank you, District Attorney Fonnie Willis and the Fulton County District Attorney's Office and staff for the thorough and complete investigation of the facts that you performed that led to the dismissal of the felony charges that I faced. But today, I have come to tell the world it is time to lean in. The joy that I feel for the dismissal of the charges I faced is tempered 
by the fact that I should have never been arrested in the first place. Two weeks ago today, Brian Kemp sat in his office, surrounded by a group of good old boys, and signed into law one of the most racist pieces of legislation in my lifetime. And as she said, uh, the DA there says she is not going to pursue charges against uh, Representative Cannon. This morning, employees at the Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, uh, it was announced they have voted against unionizing. The retail, wholesale, and department store union plans to challenge Amazon's conduct during the election formally. Uh, let's uh, talk about that. Uh, first and foremost, um, Michael, this was a, a huge deal was made about this. A number of members of Congress went down there. This would have been the first union at any Amazon warehouse in the country. Uh, there were, we had three black Amazon workers on this show who disagreed with forming a union. Uh, and based upon the, uh, the count, it looks like uh, they lost, the union lost two to one uh, in that particular plant. Some 58, 58% of the 6,000 people who worked there voted. Um, you know, Roland, a lot of southern states are um, right-to-work states also. And there's been a concerted effort to uh, attack unions and weaken unions. A lot of that has come from from Republicans. Uh, and I'm neither Democrat nor Republican, but I, I see where the attack's coming from. Um, I, I would be interested to find out from them, from the people who voted against it, especially African-Americans who voted against this, um, what what is it about unions that you're against? Is it because you don't want to pay dues to unions? Because oftentimes that 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 can be a deterrence for some people. But when you study the history of unions, even though it is true, after slavery ended, a lot of your national labor unions started like the National Labor Union in 1866. And a lot of these large labor unions started right after slavery ended to protect jobs for white men and lock us out of those jobs. That is true. But as we were able to get into these unions, it helped to, you know, in going into the 50s and things like this and, you know, 50s, 60s, et cetera. It, it, it helped to create an African-American middle class, especially in the auto industry. So I would be interested, based upon what I'm hearing about Amazon, uh, I would be really interested to find out from them what was it about you, what was it about organizing to the union to get better benefits for workers, better pay, et cetera. What is it that you're against? Well, I think we I think we got to recognize, Rob, that in the last, you know, look in the in the last since 40 years, really the last 30 plus years, um, really beginning with Ronald Reagan, um, where the attack on unions as being unnecessary, as hurting workers, uh, as being unfair, the, these things have taken place, uh, and so when that has been embedded in the mindset of people. It plays a part of this, and so, no uh, and so, part of the deal for unions uh, has been to rebrand themselves and to reassert themselves to get people to understand uh, exactly uh, the impact uh, of uh, you know uh, of unions and, and and the particular value. Uh, in fact, um, I was um, earlier today. I was looking at um, I was on social media, uh, and Midi Hassan. Uh, who was on uh, MSNBC, uh, he posted a particular graphic 
And this is what he, this is what he tweeted. He said, um, he said, if you want to understand why the Amazon union vote in Bessemer is so important and why the U.S. economy is so rigged in favor of the wealthy, so unequal, this one graph that we aired on my MSNBC show on Sunday night should do the trick. And the graph that he showed was this right here, that if you see as union membership has decreased, you have seen the gradual, the dramatic increase of income going to the top 10% in the country. Mm. That chart right there explains it. So what people have to understand, so if you look at that graph there, so really the downward trend really began to happen in the 1960s. So you really go from 1970 uh, through present day, it's been going down, 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 because we reached this point where corporate America and the Republican Party what they did was they 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 really actually they were successful in making the word two the two words that they made uh, that that were lethal in terms of being evil and wrong, liberal and union. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, they did, a, uh, they did a great job of that. And as I think the only union organizer and probably third generation union member on here, I have a lot to say about this. Um, so, you know, Michael mentioned right to work and that this was in a, a southern state. That whole phrase goes back to how long this narrative has been going on and how and how dedicated the right wing has, has been concerted in making union a bad word. You know, so mm -hmm. Dr. Martin Luther King spoke to this. He said, don't fall for these false slogans. In all these so-called right-to-work states, there are no rights and there's no works. These are just false sl uh, slogans used to make sure power is taken away from unions so workers have less power. However, marketing works. Marketing is very effective. And what corporations and, and, and what the right did is they've been working to make sure they defeat uh, liberals and they uh, and, 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 and they defeat unions. And you win by really starting a propaganda campaign. And the right wing is right. so effective. They're so effective on, on on staying on message and with propaganda. And I'm not going to just blame the right wing because there are some Democrats that didn't have the heart and, and, and didn't fight enough. And there's a third area they focused on, too. They focused on black people and mass incarceration. Those three areas really help increase the power for the right wing, and they're holding on to that. So looking at what happened and why the workers, um, you know, I understand how they made the, why they why they made the decision, because— Corporations have so much power within the law right now that they overwhelm them, and they're very effective in their marketing. They told them they were going to take all their dues. Guess what, Michael? In these so-called right-to-work states, when there's really no rights and there's really no work, you don't have to pay dues. <laughs> you don't have to. That, to that's what it means to, to be. To get the benefits of the union. Oh, no, I'm familiar with right-to-work because we have it here in I know, I know, I know, but I'm, tell, yeah. I'm telling the people so they understand because I think it's important for our audience to understand when they hear these things. Right. What, what it means to be a part of a union is you're going to have a voice. It means that they can't fire you for any other reason. They have to have calls. What it means is that you're going to have a health, that you're going to have health care. What it means is that you're likely to even have a pension. Let me say this. Uh, one of the greatest tricks that the, that, that, that the wealthy class has tricked working people into is to doing 401ks. That, it used to be that you had a pension. If you work for a company for 30 years, the company would make sure that you had a, a stable retirement. Now I think the average person when they retire has like thirty thousand dollars. It's not enough to do anything. Four hundred one k's will not replace, will not replace pensions. And so, making sure that workers have a stake in the richest company in the world, one that doesn't even pay taxes hardly, and has, it has made right. the richest person one of the richest person in history, to get their workers to say we want to make sure we make decent wages, we want to get paid uh, a good living uh, a good living wage. That's something that they would have had the power to do. 
But, you know, they rejected it. And some of it is because they're in the environment that they probably think they're going to lose their job. And you know what? That's been the truth. So people are intimidated. People don't feel like if they, people feel like if they take this step uh, that they will actually lose their job. And there's a reason for that, because even if they had won this vote, Amazon wouldn't have to do the contract because we we've seen we've seen a workers vote for a union. And then they figure out a way to get rid of the workers for the next three to four years and then because and, they have to go and negotiate and they never negotiate. We have a broken law in this country, but we also need to get people to understand that they have to take back their own power. No one's going to give it to you. Uh, can, I, can I say something real quick? Uh, hold up. Um, Joanna, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, I, I agree with my co-panelists, and, and this goes back to my experience when I was in law school. Um, I worked with a number of um, migrant farm workers, and they faced – um, a number of um, discriminatory practices, unfair wages, um, you name it, all the all the oppression that you could think of as an employee of, of a company um, they they experienced. Um, and you know trying to help with with some of my classmates and, and an organization that I worked with. And what I can tell you is a lot of those people, even though they were faced with, a host of discriminatory um, issues that they had a right to file lawsuits against the company. They refused because they were afraid of losing their job. Um, this was in Indiana where they were making $12 per hour. Um, these are immigrants coming from countries where um, they would be making absolutely nothing um, if they did not have this job. So in spite of the a terrible work conditions. Um, they decided to not move forward with with with, um, with with lawsuits against against their employer. So I think it's the same um, thing here with the with the union. Um, I think my co-panelist said this earlier as well. Um, that you know sometimes people are afraid of losing their jobs. You don't know what kind of negotiations um, that Amazon had um, behind closed doors with these em em employer employees. Correct. And also, you just never know what their bosses were, were saying to them, because at the end of the day, everybody wants to be employed. People want to be able to feed their children. People want to be able to take a vacation at the end of at the end of the year. And if, if anything, like joining a union may threaten that security and that safety, guess what? They're not going to sign up, even if it is in their best interest. Um, that is the reality, which is why I, you know, when we have these um, social movements, um, while I think they are amazing, but the movements that I want to see in this country is an, a movement towards economic justice. Let's pay people what they are worth. I, I understand why we want to take this um, colonialist um, statue. We want, to, we want it removed. We, won't, we don't want it in plain view. But what's really important to me is paying people what they worth and ensuring that everybody in this country has a fair shot. Because we can do it as a nation. We can do it. We have the resources. We have the ingenuity. We have the talents. Because if all of us are doing well, guess what? It is better for society. It is better for America. So we, we can do this. And what I want to see again is I want to see a fight towards economic justice. All right. Uh, folks, I got to bring up the, got this story here. You know, I don't care much about uh, this Eddie Munster looking fool. But uh, Florida Congressman Matt, Matthew Gates is not having... Uh, a good week. His uh, dear friend, Joel Greenberg, is expected to take a plea deal, and that deal could have him become a cooperating witness against Gates, who was accused of having sex with... Uh, no, first of all, let's be real clear, y'all. Oh, he's not having sex. He's not accused of having sex with underage girls. That's rape. That's what that is. Uh, and so uh, the conversation about the deal happened during Greenberg's court hearing Thursday. Greenberg pleaded not, pleaded not guilty to all charges, including bribery of a government official. The judge set a May 15th deadline for the two sides to reach a deal. Greenberg's attorney hinted that he is willing to cooperate with investigators on Gates' case. 
Today, the House Ethics Committee announced it opened an ethics probe into allegations of sexual misconduct against Republican congressmen from Florida. I'm not at all concerned and bothered by any of this happening to uh, Matt Gates, uh, jo Johanna. He is absolutely uh, worth, he's absolutely worth uh, being uh, scrutinized because he is one of the most despicable people in Congress. Well, what, what, what's interesting about this is the hypocrisy, right, what the, the party stands for, and to see over the years how many of their members have fall to um, issues around sexual um, misconduct, um, rape and incest, uh, and you name it. Uh, so if, if we're going to be, if you're going to have a party that is uh, for certain morals and certain values, you need to be consistent. You cannot be against abortion, but yet you're raping um, uh, um, children in, in essence, because you're not an adult until you're 18, the last time I checked in, uh, in this country. Um, so we need to be consistent. We need to stop with the hypocrisy. We need to address um, challenges impacting this nation from a place of compassion and, and, and sympathy and empathy. And instead of being this hypocrite that many of our politicians are, and I hate to say it, Republicans and Democrats in this case. Uh, Rob? Yeah, when people talk about cancel culture, if this is what they mean, he needs to be canceled. We need to cancel uh, people that are raping uh, kids, people that are uh, that are actually sex trafficking, people like Matt Gates should be canceled because it's called accountability. You do something wrong, you're supposed to be held accountable. That's not being canceled. That's how it's supposed to work. But apparently, if you're a Republican, this is that people are just trying to cancel you. The people are just against you. People are just mean. People are against men. No, people are against raping kids. I mean, it's not that difficult. He should be held accountable. He has no business in in, in Congress. He has no business being a dog catcher. He has um, he has no business being anything but behind bars. That's where he should be. Michael. Oh, you know I love this role, and Sugar Daddy Matt Gates is in some big trouble. And his dumb ass allegedly was sending money through Cash App. Okay, so, you know, <laughs> I, I sit back, and I told you before, we talked about this last Friday, this is the chickens coming home to roost. This is going to be a lot more of them. He ain't the only one. But I remember all these QAnon people talking about um, Donald Trump is cutting down on sex trafficking and child sex trafficking, all this stuff. Is this is this what they were talking about? This started under the William Barr administration. I mean, uh, under Attorney General William Barr, this investigation. Is this what they were talking about? So, um, so you have this taking place. Then you have him. He hired this uh, public relations firm. And I find it interesting. I think a lot of times, you know, when you hit with charges like this, then you have to go file a public relations firm. At the same time, you don't have a lot of Republicans stepping up to defend Matt Gates. No, I mean you got a few. You got a, you got a few like uh, uh, um, uh, crazy ass Jim Jordan, and and uh, you got Marjorie you had to Taylor break up Green. Ohio, man. <laughs> yeah, Marjorie. You got Marjorie Taylor Greene. These are some of the dumbest people in the in the House of Representatives for Republicans. This is who is defending him. Okay, I don't think yet. Donald Trump has put out a statement defending Matt Gates. Has he put one out? I ain't seen one yesterday. So I don't think he's put one out yet. And, 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 and Gates is one of the biggest Trump defenders. So, you know, this is this is karma. But at the same time, uh, I think we may find out if you find out that there was some drug usage he was doing, then, you know, that makes sense. Because I told you last Friday, half the time I hear Matt Gates, he sounds like he's on drugs. He makes no sense whatsoever. So, hey, I'm, I'm all for this. Hey, but that that would be consistent with most of the Republican Party at this at this point. So you really couldn't tell the difference. So because I mean they they engage in conspiracy theories and just crazy talk right now. This is 
nothing about like the Republican Party, which I don't agree with a lot of the, uh, the philosophies of the Republican Party. But this right now is not about being conservative. This is just pure cray cray crazy. This has no this is just right. in a weird world. These, these this is Trump where they are loyalists. These are Trump grifter yeah. loyalists. And at the yeah, same time, yeah, but you got people you like saw, Marjorie, the person you mentioned, right? The person you Marjorie mentioned, Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's raising all, mm-hmm. yeah, she's made, she's raising a ton of money. Like there is a there is a right. huge market for this right now. People want well, to be, they want to believe this stuff. Speaking of money, well, bo- well, look, Trump. look, look. Bottom line is this: real simple, mm-hmm. uh, and that is this here. Uh, Matt Gates keeps running his mouth all day. Uh, mm-hmm. Guess what? You gonna have to deal with this here, uh, and. If your boy flipped, that means he's got some he's stuff dead. on you. And even the attorney uh, stated, the attorney stated, uh, Greenberg's attorney stated, he said, Gates is probably not having a good day. That means he's got some stuff for him. All right, folks, got to go to break. We come back on Roller Martin Unfiltered. Uh, a black couple in Arizona, uh, white man who they were working with, um, pulls, tries to pull a gun out on them. They fight him off. But then his wife throws them out of their shared kitchen. They lose a ton of their food, of their product. They may go out of business with their food truck. Yo, wait till you see this video and we tell you this story. That's next on Roland Martin Unfiltered. What's up, y'all? I'm Will Packard. Hello, I'm Bishop T.D. Jake. What up, Lana Well, and you are watching Rolling Martin Unfiltered. In February, the owners of an Arizona food truck, What You Cooking, uh, were assaulted by a white man during a business meeting. The couple now fears the man will not not be properly charged for the hate crime. Uh, Folks, where do you see this video? So in this particular video, uh, we first saw this on Now This. Um, And i got to show you this video here. Uh, They were sitting in this meeting. Then all of a sudden, uh, the man just pulls out a gun on them in the middle of the meeting. They call the cops. Uh, It takes the cops 11 minutes to get there. Uh, just shocking and stunning. Watch this. Okay. Uh, so, um, again, it's it's, just, it's an unbelievable story here. Uh, and, uh, joining me now, the co-owners of What You're Cooking Food Truck, Brittany and Solomon Odebajo. Glad to have both of you, uh, with us. Uh, first, first and foremost, um, so set it up for, for the, for our audience, um, you were, you were working with this shared kitchen, correct? Yes. So, um, we were renting, um, uh, the refrigerator unit and a freezer unit. Um, we, um, it's a commissary kitchen and we were also prepping our meals, um, so we can sell on our food truck, um, with this kitchen. And so y'all go there for a meeting. What was the purpose of the meeting? 
So after only um, using their kitchen for and my husband, we received a notice, um, a 30-day notice. Um, they no longer wanted us in their kitchen. So Tom, too, um, told us that he wanted to meet with us on February 5th to discuss reasons of departure. All right. And so y'all go to this meeting. And um, what what happens uh, in this meeting here, Solomon? He comes in with an all lives matter and he starts com complaining and ripping Black Lives Matter? So my wife was in a meeting. She can actually, that part, I was getting a food truck serviced um, bit before all that. Like it led up, I got there when it led up to, you see me sitting at the table. Um, he put up the weapon, but my wife was there when he uh, brought the All Lives Matter shirt. You know, he's banging on the table and uh, it had, you know, the words, uh, Black crossed out, you know, first on a shirt, then it has white, and then it left uh, straight and gate open. But, you know, this thing for departure, that shirt that doesn't have any, it doesn't have anything to do with, you know, departure. So, so does I, so does what, so, so Brittany, you're sitting there, then all of a sudden, yeah. just out of the blue, he just comes in with his All Lives Matter shirt and starts ranting against Black Lives Matter? Yeah, so I was just sitting there and I noticed when he was um, walking up to me where he wanted to meet at, I noticed he had a piece of clothing folded in his hand. And, you know, once we began talking and he started giving reasons of why he didn't want us there, he um, became enraged and he starts unfolding the shirt and he shows me the shirt and he just starts yelling at me and calling me racist and pointing at me. And he begins telling me, um, you know, I can sit here all day, excuse my French, but he's like, I can sit here all day and tell you how shitty your business is and um, wouldn't get much like he just kept going on and on he was just so enraged and um i told him you know i said tom um you need to remain professional and calm down um and you know at that point i was like you know call your husband get him here because he was making me feel um very uncomfortable so at so so point, so, so okay so had y'all before had any conversation about Black Lives Matter? Did y'all have BLM posters on your on your truck? Uh, did did y'all have any previous discussions or run in over the issue of race or one of these high profile cases? No, we did not. So all of a sudden, dude just That's come in. He just comes in, just going nuts about Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter. Yeah, yeah. Correct. the detective. When we go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. We met with the we met with the prosecutor on, a, on the 24th of March, and you know the detective stated like he actually forgot the shirt, so he went back and grabbed the shirt to bring it back to her from the video footage that they had. So okay, so so Brittany, this happens. You all of a sudden you call your husband, um, uh, Solomon. Yes. You, Solomon, you drop everything to come over there. And I was getting, huh? I was I was in the middle of getting the food truck service. Our batteries had died because the uh, ground wire wasn't connected to the power wire. And so you and, so, so you race over. How long are mm -hmm. you there before he pulls? He tries to pull a gun out. Oh, uh, man, we was there. OK, so I walk in the door. 
10 minutes. It, it was like 10 minutes before he showed up, but then it was like 15, 20 minutes before he put a gun out. So you didn't, so neither one of you knew he was carrying a gun. No. Absolutely. And he wasn't, he didn't have the gun until um, after my husband. And when we were looking for him, that's look because when he had the meeting with me, he was sitting up. He was sitting up straight and everything. But if you notice, once my husband comes in, he kind of slouches because he has something in his back, which was found out to be the gun. So, so, so you're saying that when he met with you, the gun wasn't on him. And then when you decided to call your husband, that's what, that's when he went and got his gun and put it, put it in his, uh, put it, uh, in, uh, in the back of his, uh, uh, jeans. Yes. Correct. So, so all of a sudden, okay, you're sitting there. Two of you sitting there, mm -hmm. and Brittany, uh, excuse me, Solomon. When he makes a move, do you do you do, do your mind? Is you saying what is he doing? I think he's going for a gun. Um. So he took a deep breath. That alerted me off the back. He took a deep breath, and then he hesitated. But I watched his eye contact the whole time. And yes, he when he reached for his back weapon. So all of a sudden you jump up, you, you, you begin to wrestle with him. Um, mm -hmm. Brittany, he's telling you, call the cops, call the cops, but you're scared to call the cops. Yeah, absolutely. Because of the world that we live in today and you see, you know, African-Americans getting killed or minorities getting killed. Um, and, you know, just because they have a weapon or, or just for no apparent reason, you know, and I felt as though the situation didn't look right. We're two African-Americans and a white establishment and there's a weapon involved where I felt like we definitely ain't going to get stereotyped. This call right now, this can be it for both of us, you know. So I was really nervous, and I just kept reminding myself. I kept saying, you know what, just keep on stressing and stating on the call that we're African-American and your husband's African-American. He's not the suspect. Just make sure you keep making that clear no matter what. That's my first thought, you know. Um, there was also people, other tenants in the kitchen, and I was actually thinking to ask them for help before calling authority, honestly. Man, them folks ran out the door. Yeah, they, they, they ran out the door. They wouldn't give us the address. So it was just like, it was so scary. Like, that was one of the scariest moments of my life. And it's like, they not even cooperating with the, like, the detective, you know, asked them to write a statement or, you know, what happened. They didn't, they said, oh, we don't even know. We, we was leaving. Yeah. Like, and they, but which was a lie because they all was outside right when the incident happened I mean they was inside but then when the incident happened when the cops got there everybody moved outside so all right cops come there they finally arrive they detain him his wife comes and then what does she do to y'all yes, we have a side and we were still writing our reports and she comes out and she's just like, it's like basically like it's time to go. Come get your stuff. And we were just in shock because for one, it is a weekend. It's Friday and it was like 4.30ish. And now all of a sudden we have to get out. Like, where are we going to store all this inventory? You know? So, you, so, so, when you say all this, so, so when you say all this inventory, you're talking about food. Correct. Yes. How, we have I, lost a lot of. How, uh, how much? How much food did you uh, did uh, did y'all have there in terms of and, and, and what did it cost? Um, it was it was like a couple thousands worth probably because we, my husband, he travels to go get our meats, 
Um, and so we had all that stored. We, we buy bulks of it so that way we will have enough, you know, until we're ready to go back out, out of town. And so we are. If I had to give an estimate, uh, I want to say what about a couple of grand. Yeah, probably a couple grand. Yeah, like a couple of grand. And then that's not even including because you got to think we have to pay to get all this shipment back. We have to pay to go there, room, you know. So it's just, it was just so inconvenient and it was very, I just, no remorse. Um, her husband literally just tried to kill us for no apparent reason. Um, and so, so talk about, uh, when y'all, uh, y'all said, uh, y'all did an interview and y'all said that y'all thought y'all were going to lose, uh, your food truck, uh, and lose your business. Uh, how so? Because going to find a commissary kitchen, everybody wants 5,000 a month or 4,000 a month for, I mean, that's like ridiculous if, I mean, if you really access, but. Um, so first of all, so you're saying you're saying you're saying, you're saying you said it's going to so, cost you for a shared kitchen four to five thousand a month for the shared kitchen. Well, uh, what were you paying at the at this particular place here? Uh, he was only charging us four hundred a month. Four hundred dollars a month. Four hundred dollars a month. Because they added four hundred and fifty. They oh. had added a fifty dollar fee. Um, so because they had added uh, a freezer. Yeah. So basically, y'all were spending four four hundred fifty dollars a month. But you start calling other places, it was going to be 10 times that to use their kitchen. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Like, it, their kitchen was actually more convenient. It was close. You know? And it was paranoid. Like, like um, anxiety is, like, it, it's, it gives us anxiety to be in public, you know, around a bunch of people. We're always paying attention to make sure. Like, the first thing I look at is somebody hit. You feel me? Why I got to do that? Right. You know, I shouldn't have to live like that. We shouldn't have to live like that. Mm -hmm. It's like the trauma is affecting everybody, not just us, our kids. You know, mm -hmm. once again, like our daughter, she's eight. You know, she woke up in the middle of the night, 430 in the morning, crying. Oh, I had a bad dream that the guy in the kitchen tried to kill you guys or, you know, try to hurt us. So, you know, that's like for an eight year old to feel that, you know, what I'm saying it's like. Nobody should fear at all. Yeah. You know, and, and then you got to think it's like. Being in public, y'all said that the so so talk about what the police told y'all that this guy may so what's the status of the case? So basically, um, we are being told that he is not. Um, he might not do any, any jail, jail time. time. So basically, what he's there trying to get him to plead out to one aggravated count. Uh, uh, One felonious account uh, with, um, I mean, yeah, one disorderly conduct felonious or something like that. But this happened to two people. Why is he pleading out to one charge? And then, let alone, he put everybody in that kitchen in jeopardy, you know? Right. So it's like. So the, so how, so with, with that, would that mean no jail time? Is that is that what, is that what they're saying? Yeah, it's a possibility that he might, you know, do no jail time or probation. Like how if the shoe was on the other foot, this wouldn't it right. wouldn't be fair. I have a high bond. They would have never let me out within anywhere from. He went to the hospital right after the you know situation, but then he was in the hospital for like six hours. They let him out at four thirty three in the morning the next day, and they told us they weren't gonna let him out until we file a restraining order. 
And they still let and him they out. And they still let him out. And he's still out. So it's like a slap on the wrist. It's like you can go around harassing minorities and then, you don't. nothing happens. You know, wow. he has authority, like power, I feel like. Not only that, we since our story went viral, there has been other tenants that ran it from their kitchen and they have come forward and they are and minorities. minorities. And they said they were harassed as well. Um, there's caught on camera. And just like we told the prosecutor, we asked her, why is he out? And they go, well, he has no history of this. And it's like, well, look at all these mass shooters. Do they have history of this killings? No, they just snapped one day. And that's what he did. Literally, he just snapped for no reason. Like, you've seen it in his eyes. Um, when I, when you see me go over there to try to make sure he, my husband had him secure, he was to pull the trigger, but his finger was stuck in his shirt. Like the trick, the gun was stuck in his shirt, so he couldn't get his finger through the trigger. And it was like he was literally trying to shoot us. Wow. Um, it, it, folks said now this, the story uh, got posted. Uh, yesterday, uh, and I saw the GoFundMe yesterday, uh, it was at uh, 95000 uh, when I checked uh, yesterday. yesterday uh, morning. Uh, folks, go to my computer, please. Uh, right now, um, it is at uh, $181,655. Uh, Y'all are trying to raise uh, $250,000. Uh, and you're, you're trying to raise the $250,000 uh, to, to, to do what for your business? So we are either, we're trying to transition to a restaurant um, because, you know, I I feel safe to even be in a commissary kitchen. Like, I, would, I think I would just be too paranoid thinking someone's trying to kill me or, you know, um, having our own restaurant space would just be way better. Um, before we even started our uh, food truck, we were doing catering and our menu was much larger. So once we got a food truck, we had to limit it. So we feel, you know, right now is our time to, you know, be able to... Um, expand and have our uh, menu that we originally had, um, you know, a variety, a, a variety of things, excuse me, instead of, you know, a shorter menu. Well, folks, uh, y'all could actually go to, if you go to, if you go to GoFundMe, go, go back, uh, just put in uh, Solomon and Brittany uh, Odubajo, uh, O-D-U-B-A-J-O, right there, uh, and you can see the GoFundMe. Uh, Solomon and Brittany, we certainly appreciate it, you for joining us, uh, and certainly good luck, and hopefully, uh, hopefully this guy uh, will face some jail time for what he tried to do. Yeah, absolutely. And can we just say, you know, we want to thank everyone who's reached out to us, whether it be a repost or, you know, the money. We really appreciate it and we feel truly blessed. All right. We appreciate it. Thank you. actually care. So thank you. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you. So we were talking earlier, Johanna, about racism being a public health threat. This is a perfect example of what just being black you go through and and so here you have these folks guy tries to pull a gun out they're still they're now de they are now dealing with ptsd as a result of an act of racism that has an impact on health exactly and again this is just one incident that we that goes viral right and we know so many so many others you know when you have um, kids who are strip searched after school um, by police officers, when you have resource um, officers on campus handcuffing kids for 
for, for just misbehaving, for speaking too loud, for getting into altercation, which is what children do all the time. Um, so this, this, is, um, this is what we're talking about, racism being a public health crisis, because it impacts every aspect of our, of our lives. And one can argue that perhaps this man has uh, a mental health issue, uh, but based on the testimony of, of, of the young woman, she indicated that others have to come forward, black tenants in particular, have said they have experienced similar action by by, by this by this uh, landlord. Um, so again, um, it is a clear um, example of racism and how it impacts our health. Because now these individuals are, are are not even feeling don't even feel safe to be in in the public. And and as I'm looking at the young woman, you can tell this is someone who is very frightened. Um, especially considering that they have um, released um, this um, this individual from from, from jail, um, and she doesn't know what this man will do again if he's going to strike back. So I am so sorry for what happened to them. Um, and it, it breaks my heart and, and I wish them much success. Um, and it just shows how, uh, how, how giving the American people are in this country, how so many people have rallied behind this young woman and, and her significant other to support her business and to help her to take her business to the next level. And I wish her nothing but the best. But this is also... The rally is we shouldn't have to deal with that. We, we shouldn't have to uh, go through that. We shouldn't have to experience that. Uh, and, and, and it's always a case of people who just don't get it, who literally don't get it. Uh, um, uh, Rob, uh, here's that. Here's this idiot Paris Denard uh, working for the Republican <laughs> National Committee on Fox News, literally disagreeing with the CDC. Here we go. Heard, when I heard this statement, uh, from the CDC director, I was appalled because instead of focusing on health disparities, which we should do because they're real and COVID highlighted those, the CDC is doing the bidding of the Biden administration by once again inserting race, racism, and calling people racist for no reason. That's the Democrat Biden-Harris administration playbook. And they're doing this because they want to have the American people think that this nation is inherently racist or systemically racist, but it's not. And I think that all Americans should stand up and ask the question, if these districts, if these communities of color who have been represented by Democrats for so many years are systemically racist, does that make the Democrats who are in control racist as well? I think the CDC should focus on the Communist Party of China. COVID-19 came over to this country and has infected the world, and they should be focused on that. That issue alone is why we have seen so many people die. Yes, disproportionately in the black community, but it's not the fault of racism. It's the fault of China. Focus on that. Stand up to China and stop calling everybody, everything and everywhere racist. It's wrong. This is what happens oh, when you are stuck on stupid, Rob. <laughs> Harris Denard is an utter idiot for what he just said, uh, and they love to uh, they love to prop up uh, these folks who are just dumb. The CDC, or they're calling everyone racist. No, what they're saying is the racism that black people have to deal with on a daily basis has a direct is. impact on the health <laughs> of black people. Yeah, he knows. He, he knows what they're saying. Like the only only point I have of disagreement is I don't think he's dumb. This is a dumbass statement he's making, and he's doing it so he can get. Because look, you can have a black man make the statement. It's profitable to do so. 
that's the game that's being played. That's the game he's playing. But he's so disingenuous. There's just so much to take apart in what he said. So uh, I could be on another hour because it's just so much garbage. But let me just get to the basics. He starts off by saying they should focus on health disparities. How the hell do you focus on health disparities without acknowledging the fact that the disparities are there because of a, a racism? Racism is structural. So when he says, oh, well, are you saying Democrats are racist? The system is not individual. It is structural. It means it's built in over time. It's like a virus. Let me break it down for him. It mutates over time. And until you actually get it out and you isolate it, it will stay there. Uh, so, yes, uh, racism has been a part of America. It's not the only part of America. There are certainly good parts, but this is a part, if you want to improve America, you have to look at. You know, I'd never get conservatives when you say, like, oh, why are you so critical on America? Are you saying all America is racist? What I'm saying is, if you actually love a country, I love the country. I want it to be better. You love your kids. Are you going to tell your kids they're great when they're doing things wrong? No, we need to improve. I don't know why this is hard to for him to put his puts actually put together. And the last part I want to get is he talks about not being racist and then says something racist. He says, we need to blame it all on China. China is the reason why this happens. Knowing we have a rise in, in, in Asian hate right now, he adds that in. So he has to be the black man that throws in some racism at the end uh, just to do just to do the bidding of the Republican Party who wants to have this narrative that if you talk about racism, uh, that's bad. I want I want people and I spe specifically want people on the right to get more offended by racism than they than they do about being called racist. Get mad about the racism. I can tell you, I'd rather be called a racist than go through racism. It is harder to go through racism, racism than to be called a racist. These people are so, they talk about cancel culture and people uh, uh, giving them a hard time and people not being tough enough and being snowflakes. They're snowflakes. Every time you call them out on stuff, they get offended and, and say, oh, why'd you say that? Like, hey, suck it up, buttercup. Beyond nuts. Uh, Michael, real quick. Well, we, we all know Paris Denard is a professional white behind kisser. That's his whole gang. That's what pays his bills. We understand that. Um, but what I find interesting is that he doesn't want to address specifically what CDC Director Rochelle Walensky talked about. A growing body of research shows the centuries of racism in this country has had a profound and negative impact on communities of color. He doesn't want to deal with that research. And racism existed before the Republican Party was founded in 1854 and before the Democratic Party was founded in 1828. Racism existed in this country. It's a system of advantage and privilege distributed based upon races. And I'll wrap up with this. As Dr. Francis Cress Wilson and Nilly Fuller correctly taught us, if you do not understand European white supremacy and racism, what it is and how it works, everything else that you think that you understand will totally confuse you. So what Paris Denard is trying to do on behalf of his people, on behalf of the white people who pay him, is trying to distract and confuse us. So we can't go for that okie doke. Absolutely. Look who he worked for in the White House. All right, and, folks. And Trump, and Trump says systemic racism didn't exist. Got it. All right, folks, got to go to a break. We come back. Our Education Matters segment, why is it thousands of parents are demanding more charter schools in the state of New York, especially New York City, but Democrats say, no, absolutely not. We'll discuss that with Steve Perry next on Roller Martin Unfiltered. Respect includes making a decent wage that reflects how hard you work for your community. So what's the best way to make sure you get the pay you deserve? Join a union. Union members are paid more than people with similar jobs who aren't in unions. For women and people of color, the union difference is even greater. The respect you deserve, the pay you've earned. 
That's the union difference. Hi, this is Essence Atkins. Hey, I'm Deion Cole from Blackish. Hey, everybody, this is your man Fred Hammond, and you're watching Roland Martin, my man, Unfiltered. In the state of New York, lawmakers are being slammed for blocking a charter school's budget expansion. The demand for more charter schools is rising, but in the state capital of Albany, lawmakers refuse to lift the cap to open more. Joseph Bellock, chairman of the State University of New York Charter School Committee, said he found the opposition to charter school expansion especially incredible because the schools were a lifeline to students and parents during the coronavirus pandemic. The teachers union opposes charter schools, which are privately managed, publicly funded schools that have a longer school day in a uh, in year and whose staffers are mostly non-union. Now, the state lawmaker admits that, yes, the union pressure is a part of this. Joining me now is Dr. Steve Perry, founder and head of uh, Schools Capital Prep Schools. It has a charter school there uh, in Harlem. And the thing here, is, Steve, that is interesting. So they, the demand is really in New York City. They have this, they have this cap across, the, across the, the state. They haven't filled all of the, 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 the schools um, in this whole deal, but, but, they, but they want to cap it uh, in, in New York City, but that's where the demand is. And a lot of that demand is black people. The overwhelming. First of all, let me thank you, uh, Roland, for having me on. And it's so important that anytime we have a conversation with you, that we acknowledge how important Roland Martin Unfiltered is to the black community writ large. So, brother, thank you so much for what you do uh, for our people. And Appreciate now it. Now we'll have a conversation. The uh, importance of this conversation, specifically around school choice and charters. We know that this has nothing to do with education, with the public. It has to do with a privately run privately controlled fourth arm of government, which is the teachers union. I'm break this down. I'll make it real. All right. Hold, hold, Steve, hold tight one second. Cause okay. Hold on, Steve. Your signal is breaking up. So guys, I want y'all to fix that. Uh, then let me know when, when, when we have, uh, when we're clear with Steve's signal, cause I can bear, he's breaking up there. Can't hear anything. Uh, so I'm going to go to the panel and then we'll come back to Steve. Once y'all let me know we have it taken care of. Um, I, I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start with you. I'm gonna start with you, Rob. Here's what I find to be interesting with this particular issue: the demand is there. The lawmakers are like, "No, we're not expanding. We're not expanding," and they admit because of the pressure. Here's what I don't get: if the people are saying we're not satisfied with the existing product, why would you not then listen to the people of New York? Yeah, and it's uh, it's it's. I've seen this. This is complicated. I, I I do support charters like Dr. Perry's because they they are ones that are that are serving the community. They, it is important to have black owned uh, folks that are that are uh, conscious of our kids and are looking out for our kids. At the same time, I've also seen in Ohio where we have the other extreme where it's a, you can have for profit charters. They're not even they're not even nonprofits. You can have a charter, and this charter we had a charter to lose a hundred million dollars, and there's no accountability. So it needs we need we need to do what's in the best interest of kids. So one second, when you say the there's court. no accountability, isn't that the state's responsibility? What's that? 
the accountability. It is a state responsibility. That's a state responsibility. But 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 they're not going to do it because no no because no. they want to no no because so so hold on so yes right they're in Ohio right they're in Ohio they're in Ohio I'm talking about Ohio right right so I, so you know uh, they don't have so I've seen the other side where there's no type of accountability for and I'm not talking about nonprofit. Uh, 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 charters. I'm talking about there's also for-profit right. that make money, like that do this like for-profit prisons. And so what I like to see is some balance, like places in New York have gone too far the other way. We can actually have a, we can actually have it, uh, something that's focused on kids and that works. And sometimes unions do do exert too much control. We've talked, I've seen that with police unions too, and there needs to be balance um, uh, really across the board. So um, I've seen the politics play on both of these sides. And, 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 and certainly when you have, this is when you have too much power on one side, and, and you don't have any checks and balances, and this is this is the case when things can happen that way. And this we've seen that happen on the opposite side in conservative states, where if you look at the numbers, the education is not moving forward um, because they're still not really trying to help kids. They're still not increasing the amount of funding, and sometimes it just goes to the contributors and for ways for them to make money off of kids too. So, but again, but 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 but, but well, actually, actually, it's not a complicated issue. It's really not. It's really not. Because what it boils down to is no matter where you are, accountability is accountability. Yes, there are some states that have far more accountabilities uh, than others. The issue that you're dealing with, again, with New York, and we got Steve back, uh, is, is this. It's very, and it is very simple. There are thousands. Success, um, uh, the, the schools of even Moskowitz, they have some 20,000, 30,000 people on waiting lists to get into those schools. Okay? Um, we talk about schools that are successful. Here's my whole deal. If Steve Perry has a successful school, I want Steve to have five more. Right. And if Steve has five successful charters and he's kicking butt compared to a traditional school, hell, I ain't got a problem with Steve having five more. The, either. The issue, Steve, that, 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 that's crazy here is that the parents are saying, we don't like what you're feeding me. They're saying, you going to keep eating what I'm feeding you. Brother, we just read in our school in the Bronx that just opened last year. We have 50 available seats. We had 500 applications. Our school in Harlem, we had another 700 applications for 50 available seats. When we talk about a public education, when the public speaks and the public moves with his feet, then we should listen to them. We need to stop with the dog whistling of accountability. Almost no one who talks about accountability in public education knows what they're talking about. Because if we wanna have a conversation about accountability, I would gladly put all of the neighborhood schools up to the same accountability measures that charter schools are up for. We have to be first approved to even be considered to open a school. Then after we're approved, we have to go through another process of submitting an application. And then after we go through another process, the union gets to get another swing in the pinata to come in every single year and determine whether or not we get to stay open. Show me a neighborhood school that has that level of accountability. None. 90% of the children go to school. 90% of the schools, the children in the city of New York go to traditional neighborhood schools. 90%. What's your beef with black and Latin people making a decision, the public, that they want something different? 
Why do we keep saying that black lives matter yet send black children to the lowest performing schools in the country? When the highest performing schools in the state of New York are schools of choice, most specifically charter schools. So if you really care about black kids and black put them in the best position to be successful, this notion about for-profit and not-for-profit, first of all, for-profit charter schools represent the tiniest of tiny small uh, uh, portions. But if you want to have that conversation, they're illegal in New York. So it's not a conversation. Yeah. The reason why this is an issue, the only reason why it's an issue is because people have been drinking the union Kool-Aid. These are overwhelmingly white run organizations that have been pumping foolishness, lies, and deceit into the black community, leading us to believe that somehow if we pick our kids up and go to a school that's better for them, that that somehow hurts our children. Despite the fact that these organizations consistently keep teachers and principals employed who are not educating your kids. So we have to look at it very simply. The teachers unions in New York City in particular, there's 75,000 teachers in the city of New York. The teachers union received $1,500 in union dues per teacher. That's $112 million per year that they get in receipts. The 100,000 teachers, I mean, 100,000 children who go to charter schools have approximately 7,500 teachers. The 7,500 teachers represent a net loss in revenue to the teachers union of about $75 million. They ain't trying to lose no money. This is nothing to do with your kids because the teachers union isn't even against charter schools. They're just against non-union charter schools. This has nothing to do with children. It has nothing to do with data. And more specifically, I want to bring up a point. In New York, we have black, Latin, and Asian educators who started our own schools in our own communities. We talked about black power. We talk about finally having self-determination. And this is an opportunity for us to open our own schools in our own community where we run our own curriculum side with the white-led teachers unions. Come on, man. What are we talking about? Well, wait, wait. Well, Johnny, so, so, this is what I think you do, because I think someone that was directed at me, so let me just say this very quickly. I want you to come to Ohio and build some schools, because that though, that evidence is not in Ohio, okay? They, they sound like they, they are overreaching in, in, in New York, and, and and I do think there should be more schools like yours, like the Kips of the world, like, uh, like, like, like many of the brothers I've seen in New York. I agree with that. But I also don't think that necessarily saying if we get rid of all teachers unions, suddenly we're going to solve systemic inequality within education. That's the problem I have, right? So like saying that unions are the are the problem with everything in entire education, that's the only thing. I, that's the only point I have a disagreement with you on. That's it. So sure, let me let me because, let me say this to you. I want anyone yeah. to have an opportunity to be a part of any organization they wish. Period. Yeah. But let me make this clear. Compulsory attendance in an organization is unconstitutional. Making someone pay dues to an organization that they did not decide to be in by virtue of the fact that they actually just picked the profession is to me unconstitutional. So what I think is that we have a, dip, a deeper conversation. What is best for black children? And well, Roland Martin years ago, Roland Martin did a poll, uh, I'm not sure how many years ago, brother Roland, you can speak to it where the question was asked, how do black people feel about charter schools and choice in general? 82% of African-Americans said that they supported it. So if this is what we want. Why can't we have finally something that we want? Why are we I don't disagree with having fighting it. for the simplest things? Right. Uh, so uh, I'm not suggest brother, let me, let me be clear. I, I, I'm not suggesting that you do. And so if it sounds like I'm coming for you, please know that I'm not. I'm somebody who deeply loves what I do. And so if it sounds any other way, please know that that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this, too often the conversation shifts to union tropes. 
And I'm saying to you, as a black man who is opening schools in our own community to serve our own community, to teach what we want. When I saw a brother on, on, uh, on, on The Breakfast Club this morning who was talking about how he's going to work to teach brothers in the streets about how to use stocks and bonds, you know what I did? I reached out to him and I said, hey, brother, why don't you come talk to our schools? I ain't got to talk to nobody about that. I ain't got to go down to the school district and have that conversation. I don't have to make sure I run it up the curriculum ladder to decide whether or not that's going to do. I reached out to Charlemagne. Charlemagne said, here's the brother's number. We have a conversation. Now he's coming to talk to our school to talk to black and Latin kids about how to use them, how to, how to use the system and not have the system use them. That's the difference when we run our which own schools. Which is why schools. I support Charlie. So, 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 so one second. So, Johanna, your, your question for Steve Perry. Yeah, I, I think that the conversation around charter schools um, is a great one. I, When I was in law school, I was a substitute teacher. I um, subbed at a number of uh, charter schools throughout um, the state of Indiana. Um, and, and, and not all charter schools are perfect, right? And, and what I can tell you, um, and not all public schools are perfect either. Um, but if we can create our own charter schools and have curriculum um, that will serve the needs of our children and have and have teachers and staff and, and, and principals who serve in the best interest of, of the students. For me, that is something that I support 100% because I understand the importance of having a sound education. As an immigrant who came to this country at the age of nine, did not speak English, I am a beneficiary of a terrible education system. I grew up in Orlando, Florida, Pine Hills area. Some of you may be aware of it. It's now called Crime Hills. Um, I benefited from a very terrible education system. And I wonder if my parents understood or knew about charter school options when I was growing up, perhaps I would have gotten a much better education. And, and Brother Perry, I've been following your work for quite some time. Um, you are a passionate man about the work that you do. Keep fighting the good fight. I don't have any questions for you. If anything, we are here to support you and support your cause. Thank you for what you're doing for our babies. Uh, let's go to um, let's go to uh, Michael, please. Just Michael, appreciate Michael, you got a question for Steve. Specific, and I want I want to say I want to stay on topic of what's happening in New York State again. Them not wanting to lift the cap, uh, and uh, that is Michael. Go ahead. Yeah, just uh, very quickly here. Um, so, what do you think? How do you think you get around this, Dr. Steve Perry? What 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 do you think are the next steps for? for you all in uh, the state of New York to fight against what's taking place with state lawmakers? To be honest with you, brother, it's about holding people accountable for what they receive for themselves. It's about saying to black and Latin legislators in particular, brother, I know you send your kid to a magnet school, a charter school, a vocational technical school, private school, but a school that is not your neighborhood school. All I want you to do is to extend that same thing to the people who you represent. It's about holding, in many cases, our own people who are in positions of authority in the legislature accountable. So it, it's about pushing them because we know that the, the white liberal arm of the Democratic Party is so deep in the empire, they wish not to hear what we're saying. I wish they could. Don't, don't tell me that you support um, self-determination when, in fact, we're coming to you. When a black parent says, I don't want to go to this. I don't want my child going to this school. As the sister was saying, I, I, I don't want my child going to this school. Who are you to tell them that they must? Why would you do that? So we have to hold, quite frankly, some of the people who we care most about accountable. Some of our own black and Latin legislators who are in positions of authority, specifically in the legislature in New York State. There's a really strong group of brothers and sisters 
who are legislators in New York who could make this issue go away. I'll give you a for instance. We have an organization I mentioned it's called the uh, Black Latin Asian Charter Collaborative, or Black, as we refer to ourselves. We represent about 25,000 children in New York City proper. And we, we are all founders of our own schools. And, and so I, you, I'm one of the people who does this work and, and humbled to be able to do so. We've spoken to the legislature and we've spoken to the Black and Latin caucus as well as the Asian members in that group as well. And we've said to them, much in the same way that you would do an MWB, Minority Women Business Association, that you would open up more charters to that group, give those to us just the same way, because we're the least likely to get a charter at African-Americans and Latin uh, leaders. We're the most likely to have our charter revoked and the least likely to uh, win our charters in trouble, to have that charter uh, presented to another organization to have that charter saved. So what we have to do is we have to invite more people from our community to open more schools. There are so many pastors and community activists and uh, uh, business leaders and educators and parents who want to open schools in our community. We need the legislature to give the community what it wants. All right. Uh, we lost Steve's signal there, uh, but... Steve, I appreciate it. Thank you so very much, man. Uh, we'll see what happens there uh, in New York State, uh, and uh, we'll keep following the story. Thanks a lot. All right, now I'll leave it there. Also, want to thank uh, Rob, uh, Johanna, as well as Michael as well for being on our panel today. Thank you so very much, uh, folks. Uh, show's not over yet uh, because I was in St. Louis. Uh, I had the opportunity to sit down with Michael McMillan. He runs the Urban League in St. Louis, and folks, uh, if you want to know what it looks like to have a strong Urban League chapter, what they are doing in St. Louis is it. Check out this conversation. Well, Mike, glad to be back in St. Louis. Um, I was here, of course, uh, for uh, MLK event at a yes. good time, and then uh, COVID has changed yeah. everything. Uh, and, 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 and let's start there. Um, uh, how has this really impacted the St. Louis Area Urban League uh, and the things that... Uh, y'all do on an uh, annual basis well really first and foremost it's good to see you it's good for you to be back in st louis uh, even though it was just a year ago it seems like four or five years yep. since i saw you last and just like we knew that you would when you came and gave that keynote speech for our martin luther king program you inspired people into action you inspired them to think differently and you inspired them to really take an introspective look at what am I doing as a person? What are we doing as organizations? What is the governmental system doing and how can we be better? And so I think all of that was good. You accomplished every goal that we wanted you to when you came. You know, this year, obviously, it's been really a nightmare for so many people and people have been reduced to their just basic survival. And so because of COVID, we have been doing these mass events to try to help as many people as possible, quite frankly, just get through this and then try to pivot so that they can get different types of jobs, get into a different industry. So we've been doing these huge food, toiletry, mask, gloves, sanitizer events, doing a lot to pay people's rent, mortgage, utilities, you know, do anything that we can for them with our Head Start program for childcare. And then the ones that have lost jobs in industries that really won't return. And if they do, it'll be years from now. 
pivot them into jobs that exist today. And so my team has been amazing. You know, we've been working right in the middle of it every single day. We've stayed at the forefront. In the past year, we served more people than ever. So we did 90,000 individuals Mm. that drove through 27 of these large-scale events and then are continuing on this year because, of course, the crisis is not over. I was talking to someone. um, I said, I'm coming to town. Uh, she said, "Oh, you, you, she said you got you, you got to do an interview uh, with Mike." I said, "Why?" I said, "I said I want you to explain." She said, "No, seriously." She said, "The stuff." She said, "I am seeing the St. Louis area urban league do stuff that I'm not seeing from other urban leagues." She said, "It is it is really redefined in many ways the mission," and she said it's probably going to be the future mission because what COVID has done, I mean, we knew there were people who had issues with food. We knew there were people who had issues with evictions, things along those lines, but it's really put it on front street. And I, I I think it is, it, it is really caused organizations to say we were doing these things before, but we really got to go much more granular and deeper to be able to touch people where they are. Oh, no question. I mean, so the people we serve, quite frankly, on average had a $10,000 annual income anyway before Mm. COVID. And so then now you take that away from them. So all the people in the food service industry, all the people that work at the convention center, the retail jobs, the airport jobs, and all these other positions that had great, you know, careers, uh, ideally, and or just a general sense of stability that just got wiped out. And then other people that you wouldn't even think about, you know, musicians that play at churches and pastors of small churches themselves that had no digital capacity and, a, and a, quite frankly, an older population mm-hmm. that now were not able to have church. The senior citizens weren't able to tune in, so it couldn't go digital. So we even had pastors driving through the line for themselves mm. because they had been reduced to basic survival. And so what we really decided to do bluntly is to take an introspective look and say, this is the time that people needed us the most. So what are we going to do? You know, a crisis defines your character. And so we got to do more than we've ever done before and try to do it as safely as we can Mm -hmm. for the staff and, of course, the clients. So our outreach centers that we would have normally given things to you, you know, one on one. We couldn't do that anymore the way that we used to. So we set up these church events. So in these local churches in the African-American community, we also put food, toiletries, mask, gloves, sanitizer there. And then we did home deliveries for seniors, shut in and individuals that didn't have transportation and the large scale events because we were just bombarded with and continue to be every single day. You know, Facebook requests, Instagram, LinkedIn. I would have never thought that LinkedIn would have become a place where people would be asking for their rent and gas bill to be paid. But people are just so much in need. They're reaching out every way they can. The um, one of the things things I have been really just really for the last decade and, and I talked about it in when I spoke here. Um, is 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 how I think we, we have to redeploy our organizational infrastructure. Um, when I look at when I speak to the alphas, I go, "Yeah, we're doing things, 
but I think we're too insular. I talked about how Divine Nine, I said we're vertical and we're horizontal. I'm challenging Masons. I said we have all this infrastructure, but I really believe that we're not maximizing the infrastructure. We're doing things. We're helping people. We're having scholarship, but I don't think we're maximizing it. And I think we're not looking at our infrastructure in a way that causes us to say, and I'll just give you a perfect example. Um, For a book to make the New York Times bestseller list, typically you're talking about sales of 20, 30,000, whatever the number is. I've said this, that imagine if you take your, just your fraternities and sororities, you put in the links, you put in the Masons, you put in Eastern Star. Email goes out and they say, we're going to buy this one book this particular month as organizations. I said, we literally could create black bestsellers every single month. Yeah. Every single month. Now apply that same concept to what I talked about at the State of Black America report of gentrification and us owning our community. Same thing. Okay, how do we then take our organizational infrastructure to create real estate funds, to create crowdfunding, if you will, to say we want to sit here and go out and raise X amount of dollars and we're going to begin to buy land, develop land. That's where I think where we really have to be to say – People think, well, we individually, black people don't have money. I'm like, no, but organizationally, we've got infrastructure, we've got leadership, but it's how we use it and deploy it. Oh, no doubt. And when you look at the community, I mean, quite frankly, we have to change the paradigm where people get rewarded and patted on the back for leaving the hood. We have to invest in our own Mm. community and Mm. own our own neighborhoods. And so that's why since I saw you last, we actually moved our headquarters. So, yeah, we did. We were right around the corner from here at a a great spot on Del Mar. And we had been there for almost 50 years. But we went and bought the old Sears store that's in North St. Louis at the heart of Martin Luther King, Kings Highway and Page. It's a 205,000 square foot facility. It's the only single standing department store left in the city. And it really was a beacon in the black community because it was the only department store that we had. And after that, the Roberts Brothers, which is an African-American media and real estate company, they then had it for 40 years and we bought it from them. We moved over there. We're renovating it as we speak in stages with an enormous amount of minority participation in terms of obviously the contractors. And it'll be the first time that we'll take all of our 55 programs and put it into one location. Wow. Yeah. So that we'll be able to help people with everything that they need by coming to one space. And more than likely, it was uh, a strong value proposition massive amounts of space, which now allows for you to think far more creatively how we can use this space uh, and to be able to do more things. Also, if it was a shopping place, it probably also has a massive parking lot. So now, how do we also now utilize this? It probably helped you with COVID because now you can say we can run as many cars through here or whatever the heck. That's right. That's rethinking 
yes. uh, resources. Yeah, no, so it, just to your point, so we've been able to have many of those different 27 distributions right there at the headquarters because, as you said, you know, having a department store, you have a huge parking lot. There's a plaza behind us that's going to be phase two of the capital campaign. So the 205 plus 45 will give us a quarter of a million square feet to not only do our programs, but also we have a free health clinic. We're going to have the St. Louis American to partner with us and come into the space as well. Also, we'll have some free legal work. And then we have BIPOC businesses. So they're either all black or people of color and then other resources as well. And we have a TV studio in there. So when you come back to St. Louis, you'll be able to do your podcast and all your national mm. broadcast there in the studio. And so this now becomes a development hub. Yes. And then what then happens is all that land that's surrounding that now is increasing in value. Yes. Uh, which means, again, for African-Americans, buy it. So therefore, when it increases in value, now you actually have uh, have have something that was at a low price before. Now all of a sudden, value goes up. That we that, that again that we are owning exactly. And we have a program in our newly created division of public safety that we also created since I saw you last, where we go out into low to moderate income black communities that need help. Where you have these vacant, abandoned, derelict homes that are beyond saving. And we've been tearing them down because in many cases, sadly, they've been used for drug activity and all types of illicit activity and taking down the value for the homeowners right. and the businesses in that community. So we did that around the headquarters and tore down about a dozen buildings, cleaned up that whole area, and have prepared it for development, which we also did on North Grand, right around the corner from here, and lit the most significant, uh, quite frankly, public monument in the black community, which we call the Old Water Tower on North Grand. So we lit that, and we also painted it. It hadn't been painted in 26 years. It was really an eyesore and something that would cause really trauma for young people when you go through your neighborhood and you see vacant and abandoned buildings, trash, and then public monuments that the city, you know, hasn't had the priority or hasn't had the capacity or hadn't had the budget to paint. And it's just sitting there as a derelict example of the neglect in the black community. So we're trying to do things, as you mentioned, really from a development standpoint on top of the human side as well, so that you can have both where you have a better person, but a better neighborhood to be a better person in. What was it like presenting the, the, new, the, the, the vision? You know, it was uh, one where everybody was unilaterally supportive. Uh, we're also working with a CDFI and a real estate development not-for-profit in St. Louis as well on the potential of even a merger so that you would look at how you can really invest in these communities in a way, because sadly, as you know, we have not had any type of federal policy for urban America. Mm -hmm. HUD's budget has been reduced. It hasn't been prioritized. And when you look at renovating these buildings, it doesn't make business sense for a lot of people to come in without some incentives. Right. And since we haven't had the same level of incentives, then you haven't had the capacity to get these projects done. And then the community languishes and just gets worse and worse and worse. And we got to stop that. We have to change that trend. See, this is why this is what, when I was um, when I was critical of Trump's enterprise zones. I told people, I said, I said, I have a problem with enterprise zones. I said, I mean, no, they call it opportunity zones. <clears throat> when, was, when, when Jack Kemp 
was HUD secretary. They called him Enterprise Zone. I said, first of all, I said, it's not new. I said, the problem I had was they couldn't support any data that showed me that black folks were benefiting. So every time it was like, oh, this is what Trump knew for black people, it would bring up these opportunity zones. And I would go, okay, could you show me the data where the black people are benefiting other than the developers who are able to sit here and park their money uh, for periods of time and, get, and, and derive tax benefits? Same thing with tax increment finance districts. These cities do these things, and developers with massive amounts of money, again, they can afford to park money for a decade, hoping an area turns around, and then when it does, oh, mixed-use development, all of a sudden, so-called affordable housing, really you're putting up condos, things along those lines, driving out uh, poor people, people who are black, who are white, who are Latino, bringing in young, young white folks who can afford to live there. And now, oh, this is great, this is wonderful, but then those same people are still broke, got to go somewhere else, typically further out from the city core, and now their lives are, lives are even worse. To me, this is what you're describing is exactly what urban leagues around the country should be doing, what other black organizations should be doing. Again, maximizing our capacity or maximizing our infrastructure to actually build capacity. Yes. Yeah, no, we have to build on what we have because the sad part is individually, in many cases, we don't have it. But collectively, we do. And really, that should be the point of black organizations. How do we take our collective capacity, put it together, and then use that to really make a difference? And, you know, quite frankly, sadly, you know, having been doing this since I was 16, we're not nearly where I thought we should be. Mm -hmm. And that's why I said this year and going forward and the rest, we really have to do some bigger, bolder things. Like we merged with a legacy organization named Grace Hill. The other part is we have too many not-for-profits. We have, you know, quite frankly, too much need for back office and Say infrastructure it, that, and PR, and we need to come together. There you go. Th that is that is interesting you say that because I, I've had, look, over the years, numerous people come to me. And I want to start a nonprofit. I said, I can guarantee you that whatever it is that you want to do, there's already a nonprofit exists that's doing that. They're just waiting for you to show up. Yeah. And, I, and I tell folk, you got to resist the urge where you need to have your name on the business card. I said, as opposed to, because the thing where, I'm at, where I am also, it's, it's the same thing with black business. I'm like, y'all, it's capacity. I said, it's not that we need more black businesses. I said, no. Problem is we got pre-COVID 2.6 million black-owned businesses. 2.5 million only had one employee. I said, we got no capacity. I said, so you got a whole bunch of small entities. I said that, again, silos, living, operating in silos. And yeah, how, how many offices are we renting? How many light bills are we paying? How many phone bills are we paying? All of that versus how do you say, no, no, if I'm able to merge, combine, now we can actually do more because you're not spending money yes. on, frankly, the same stuff as other people are. It's, it, it, it's capacity. Yes. Yeah. And, and you never want to. And I'm sure you in those conversations you've had, you're doing the same thing I am. You're not trying to kill anybody's hopes or dreams right. or aspirations, but you're trying to be realistic because bluntly in St. Louis, we have 17,200 not for profits. And if we could have fixed everything, we would have done it by now. See, Mike, what you're laying out is, is music to my ears because it's, it's, just, it's doing the work. It's doing the work, and it's actually having a grand idea. And when our people 
actually, I go back, I use Nehemiah. They, the leader said, here's the vision. The people said, let us, let us rebuild. And then when people see it actually being built, they get excited. Now, all of a sudden, even the haters, the people, the doubters are seeing positive progress. Is that what you've seen as well, where people said, yeah, okay, all right, yeah, okay, Mike, that's cute. You said you're going to do this, y'all going to do that. Then all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, they're actually doing this. Yeah, you know, St. Louis, I would say, uh, as a market, is very charitable. In the black community, we receive an enormous amount of support from black professionals, individuals, business people, et cetera. And so all of that combined with what we're trying to do for our actual clients, we really have received an enormous amount of assistance because bluntly, we couldn't do this without that. Mm -hmm. We cannot give anything that we don't have. We can't buy anything without any resources. And so, you know, luckily, uh, we really haven't had any public haters uh, in terms of what we've been trying to do. And if if you look at the history of the Urban League in St. Louis at 103 years old and and now with 20 different locations throughout the whole, you know, community, North City, North County, parts of South City and then East St. Louis, you see that uh, we have an enormous network of support. And as you talked about earlier, how do we take that infrastructure And really, our goal is to be the most impactful black institution in St. Louis, Mm -hmm. period. That's the goal. Black excellence. How do we implement that? And how do we do it every day? We don't always do it, but we try our best to do it. You mentioned when you talked about merging then with others as well. Yes. That, to me, that's also how we expand the capacity. So if the Urban League, so you're not in education, which means that you should be partnering with Harris Stowe. Yes. If you're if you're not if you're not in health, I should be partnering with entities. That's the other thing that also having having uh, what I call just just a cross organizational leverage that we have to be also be thinking about versus saying, well, no, we're going to create our own yeah. our own education piece and health piece and no, that that goes back to the problem having four or five or six or eight different things versus, no, no, we're going to do this well and we're going to partner with folks who do this well to work together. No, absolutely right, because we know what we know and we know what we don't know. And the truth of the matter is we can't be everything. And there are already people doing good work. So on most of the big projects that we have, we partner with someone who is an actual expert in that field, whether it's education, healthcare, or any of the other things that we need to do that we don't really do as a social service agency and a human you know, capital agency. So we have to do that. And quite frankly, going back to that whole concept of mergers in the way, and there are 17,200 not-for-profits, as I mentioned, in wow. St. Louis. 17,000? 17,000 in our whole region. And if all of us collectively were able to fix all the problems, we would have, and we haven't. And so, bluntly, we got to come together and work harder than smarter, especially when you look at drying up funding, when you look at changing times, when you looked at, as we talked about earlier, the evolution of events. You know, so many of us in the not-for-profit world, Urban League included, have a line item for what is the event revenue for your annual gala, for our women's tribute, for our this, for our that. And then now that that is gone mm-hmm. and you're trying to get people to just hold on with mm-hmm. you and contribute as much as they used to, and some do and some don't. And then you look at different companies that merge and the headquarters moves out of town and then they no longer give. 
So how do you try to create multiple streams of revenue and then reduce cost as well, which is where these mergers come in that make the most sense? And the good thing about the Urban League is, as you mentioned earlier, it's not the Michael McMillan Foundation. So if something happens to me, which, of course, eventually it will, that then the whole organization goes away. The Urban League has been here for over a century as part of a national organization. It will last. And so coming together under the umbrella of the Urban League gives the continuity that people need, quite frankly, to have the confidence to want to support us. See, that's why I think just the reimagining of when you say 17,200 nonprofits, um, I mean, that, that, that is massive. And, and, and I think that uh, if you start sitting down and going, OK, but what are all what, what are all the core areas and what's the level of duplication and how many people are we talking about? And and now, well, heck, most of your money is going to staff and buildings and not the actual uh, work in the community. I, I just think in many ways um, th- what you're describing here has to be replicated because. It's a whole lot of stuff and a whole lot of things and a whole lot of moving parts. But at the end of the day, are you moving the needle? If you're not, it's time to figure out what's a new way of doing this thing because just keep saying we're just going to keep supporting the same infrastructure, keep supporting the same plan uh, that's not changing things, that ain't going to work. No. And you have to learn to change with the times. You know, earlier when we were talking about media, We've had to totally evolve to a very consistent social media platform, our website, how we send out digital information, how we communicate with the people under 40. That's a whole different world than how we came up. Like when we first started our careers, there was no Internet. There was no email. There was no texting. And so how do we get that word out and engage them? Because if we don't do that, the organization will die. And I tell them in the office all the time, we do not need to be part of a black history exhibit about an <laughs> urban league that used to right. exist. And it was a great organization. And now they don't exist anymore. And if we don't get more young people in and change and evolve, that's exactly what will happen to us. How are you also using your leverage, your 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 influence as someone who spent time in politics to also change politics and the dollar. What I mean by that is when I think about uh, Maynard Jackson and contracts, when I think about how Atlanta was built, how black Atlanta was built economically, and how that then is impacted around the country, those companies being able to grow uh, and prosper. Um, One of the things that I just keep telling, we got to follow the money and how we pushing and leveraging political power, or as Mayor Jackson said, uh, you know, the three B's, the ballot, the book, and the buck. How do you use the ballot, which is politics, to impact the buck? Because the reality is, in many ways, we're not getting our fair share, no. and I think not, 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 not enough of us are demanding uh, fair share and explain to people why we're taxpayers, there should be a return on what we're actually uh, uh, getting. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, we've constantly been advocating for city, state and federal programs and corporate programs because these public companies that we all support, that we are customers of, sadly, in many ways, do not have procurement programs. And then if they do, 
they don't have the staff to enforce it. And so frequently, especially past George Floyd, right? So there have been a lot of announcements right. about diversity, equity, inclusion, getting out there and trying to do more. And so what I've told all the companies in St. Louis, do not hire a vice president of diversity and inclusion and not give them any staff, right. any budget, Come on. any authority, Come on. and just make an announcement and have them go to various banquets. And all you guys an assistant. That, that is not a real program. You know, that is a start, but that person has to have autonomy. That's right. They have to have a budget. They have to have some control and some power because otherwise it's really just more of the PR department yep. than it is a real systemic change. Yep. And the government policy, you know, we have to keep working on that. And sadly, you know, at this age, we're still talking about this same thing. And it needs to happen. And you mentioned Atlanta and Maynard, of course, really is like the, the quintessential example of how you can have a black mayor and he or she can be transformative mm -hmm. in terms of the lives of black people. And I mention Atlanta all the time and say, really, St. Louis should have the goal to be the Atlanta of the Midwest, because now at around three million people here, we if we had kept up with the same pace of Atlanta, we would be eight or nine million. Because if Atlanta can grow a million people per decade and still be the beacon of black opportunity, mm -hmm. then that shows that that's the path. That's the model. Not trying to hold things back to the way that they used to be because then you're just meandering about and not even growing. And sadly, in St. Louis, we all love this city. We appreciate it. I'm going to spend my whole life here. I've dedicated my whole life to it. But we have not grown at the population of the nation's percentage. Our growth has been below that. And so I think that people, quite frankly, don't see this city in many ways as a place for black people to have a great career and to be able to do something mm -hmm. to thrive. But it can be. It can be. It is in many ways. And it could be much, much better. I know that you had a town hall and, you know, the conversation about the mayor's race is coming up. And I know that earlier you and I talked to Pat Washington and I had the privilege of working for our first black mayor. That was the only black mayor that was ever elected by a majority of the black community. And really, if you look at the evolution of this city, it appears as though we will have a black mayor again, either Tashar or Lewis Reed. And the question for all of us as organizations, as citizens, as government elected officials, is how do we take the power of our position to really make a difference long term? And it's going to be up to all of us to do that. So hopefully in a year, two, three, four, five, when you come back, and have your show at the Urban League studio up there at Martin Luther King <laughs> and King's Highway, we'll be able to really sit right. down and say, these are the things we did. This is where we move the needle. And we're not just talking, we're actually doing something. Right. And, and people can see it and have the faith and confidence in black organizations, black yep. leaders, and black organizations that you know are emerging as well to come together and try to be on the same page as much as we humanly can. Um, you, what you said about the, 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 the DNI, uh, that is so spot on because I always say, look, if you have no P&L responsibility in the company, you are not a priority. You are simply not a priority. And too many of those positions are. And I was talking to a sister, she's been recruited by a company, and she said, this is the commitment I want to black organizations. It was a um, substantial number she put on the table. She said, if your company, and it, and it wasn't a million, 
it was multiple millions. She said, and I want to be the person responsible for handing this out. So I need you to prove to me your commitment up front. She never went to the company because that was her way of saying, I'm not about to leave where I am. Put my credibility on the line just for you to be able to say, hey, we hired so-and-so and so-and-so and things look good. And, and we have to be willing to challenge them. It's just like, to me, whether they're on the National Urban League board, NAACP board, they're working with the Image Awards, they're working with Rainbow Push, National Action Network. To me, there should be a race equity index. It should be, okay, you want to come serve on our board? What are the contracts your company is giving out? What, who are the people? Are the, the, uh, do you have black ad agencies that you're working with? What are the what are the media dollars you're spending with black media companies? What is your supply diversity with black media companies? Because if you want to come and basically draft off of, you know, here's our work with the Urban League, our work with the NAACP, our work. No, 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 no. We need to make sure that your company is doing the stuff too, and you're just not happy. Hey, here's a fifty thousand, hundred thousand dollar check for the organization, but your spending is 1% or less with black, with black companies. Yes. Yeah, and do you have any blacks on your board of directors in the C-suite? And then also, as I tell some people in you know, corporate St. Louis, is you also need to have black people in your leadership and on your board that have a strong relationship right. with the black community. There you go. So that when I see, not everybody they pick, yes, no black people. Yeah, because if I see Roland is on the board of directors, then I know the right thing is going to happen, right? But a lot of times, if I just get a person that you know has a great job and has had a great career, and they live in the more affluent part of town and really have no relationship with mm-hmm. the black community, that really didn't do anything for you. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, well, Amber did do thing for, it doesn't do anything for us because what it actually it did do something for you. What what you got is you got the black check off, yeah. and you got to be able to say, "Oh no, we have a diverse board." Well, no, how are you leveraging it? See that 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 that's what I'm looking at, and, and that's why when when I interface with some companies and I hit the black board member, my whole deal is, let's see if you're gonna respond. What are you doing? What are you saying? See, and, and, and that's what, and, and that's where I think there's a level of activism that's also important where we have to be. Where we have to be willing to demand and put respect on black. And I think a lot of time, and I've had to check some of our people in organizations I'm in who say, "No, we need to we represent people of color." I'm like, "No, we're only here for black people." I'm like, "This should be real clear." When I walk into the room, I'm here for black people now. If other people get some opportunities as well, that's fine. But what I'm not going to do is walk in saying I'm representing people of color. And then you go out and hook up people of color and nobody who gets hooked up is black. I can't say nothing because I only walked in asking for you to help people of color. Yeah, no, you are not the ambassador <laughs> of the United Nations. That's not your job. No. Yeah, and, and especially in markets like St. Louis, where you've got almost uh, 3 million people and 500,000 African-American. And, of course, happy to see all races succeed. You know, that is definitely, you know, something that would be a good thing for everybody. But when you look at the demographics and who the real minorities are, who has been the beneficiary 
of these contracts when they are given out is something that has to be analyzed because the real question is the policy has been put in place based on who has been kept out. Mm -hmm. And we know who that has been. Right. It's black people. Yeah. So there is no reason to sometimes conflate these whole, you know, diversity programs and conversation that it has to be for everyone all the time in a market that has half a million black people as one out of six individuals. And you look at the concentration of poverty, the concentration of every disparity there is. That's where we have to focus our resources. Ten years, let's say. My final question for you. Say ten years from now. What do you want people in St. Louis, black people, political people, business people, and then what do you want others not from here to say about the St. Louis area urban league? Well, in our case, you know, as an institution, as an organization, my goal is for the Urban League to be the most impactful black institution in St. Louis that ever was or ever will be. That's my goal. And if the Lord blessed me to have this job for 22 or so more years, when I walk out the door, that is what I want it to be. And that we are so secure in terms of our resources, our land, our endowment, our status that there is no way that the Urban League could ever go out of business. Because sadly, in St. Louis, we've had a number of different effective NGOs and then also black not-for-profits that just simply don't exist anymore or places that are now just a shell of themselves. Mm -hmm. And they used to be very impactful, mm -hmm. and now they have one person at home working in a bedroom as the only staff that represent that entire organization. Mm. And then I would say in terms of the community as a whole, really that goal of being the black Atlanta of the Midwest. You know, how can you make a decision that everybody is welcome to the table? Everybody is valued. Everybody has the resources to succeed. And as St. Louis starts growing above and beyond and that young black people and all people, but especially young African-Americans, feel like this is a place that I can live and I can raise my family. I can have a great life in St. Louis. I don't have to move someplace that I've never, ever been to and think that I, as a black person, have a better life someplace I've never even visited versus the very place that I was born in and spent my entire life. And sadly, there are too many of us that are doing that to this very day and that we can see it in the numbers. That it's not just a conversation and a feel good, but when you look at the statistics on unemployment, that young black men 18 to 24 are not so drastically unemployed compared to everybody else. And when you look at the high school attainment, college degrees, and MBE, WBE, I don't need to be able to have you to come here and say, well, you know, there are only two black-owned locations downtown that are actually owned by black people. Out of all of these hundreds and hundreds of buildings that are there, only two are owned by black people. Mm. I want to be able to show you an enormous amount of land and contracts and stable companies that are black owned and operated and that the staff reflect the community input, output and what we're doing. All right. Looking forward to that. That's the goal. Michael Miller, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. All right, folks, I want to thank Michael McMillan for sitting down and having that conversation. Folks, if y'all want to support what we do here 
at Roland Martin Unfiltered, please do so by joining our Bring the Funk fan club. Our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans contributing on average 50 bucks a year. That's $4.19 a month, 13 cents a day to our fan club. You can do so via cash app, dollar sign RM Unfiltered, paypal.me forward slash rmartinunfiltered, venmo.com forward slash rmunfiltered, Zell is rolling at rollinsmartin.com or rolling at rollinmartinunfiltered.com. As always, every Friday, we close the show out with the members of our Bring the Funk fan club. Folks, thanks a bunch. I'll see y'all on Monday. And don't forget, we have on a Sunday, April, uh, this Sunday, we have our com conversation in, about New Jersey, Black Economic Social Justice. We'll be streaming it right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Y'all take care. Holla!
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.